0: You're listening to Episode 1 from the Spotlight Musical Theatre Podcast for Young Performers with me, Simon Wright. In each episode, I invite a special guest from the world of musical theatre, dance and entertainment to talk to me, sharing their wisdom and, I hope, giving you a little inspiration. Today I'm joined by Janet Devonish, the original Meg Giry from the London production of Phantom of the Opera. Hi, Janet.
1: Hi, how are you doing?
0: I'm very well, thank you for joining us today.
1: You are more than welcome.
0: So, Janet, the original production of Phantom the Opera, how did it all begin, and how did you get the part?
1: Well, at the time, I was in my first West End show, which was 42nd Street at Drury Lane. I'd been in a lovely but very small ballet company for nine months um, when I first left Bush Davis, and that was way back in 1983 and I was very lucky in so much as I was able to join the cast of 42nd street without at the time my full equity card. Uh, There was a very strict way into the West End at the time which was that you had to have done 52 weeks of work regionally as a provisional member of the union and then you would get your full equity card but because 42nd street was such a tappy show and because uh, the company had already tried to cast it in the UK once um, on an agreement that they would audition all over the UK, they were allowed to have several um, non-full equity members in the cast. So I'm very, very thankful for that because that meant that I had my full equity status.
0: But is that still the same now?
1: No, not, not the same at all anymore. Um, it was quite some time ago that equity became more of an open shop, as it were. Uh, those strict rules have been relaxed and it's much easier with respect to uh Get a show like that now so it was uh, tougher at the time but uh, well worth it my and, and as I was saying my agent at the time uh, I got through being in Forty Second Street through the company manager of the show so it was all very linked in many ways and so I was sent for the audition for Phantom by my agent Nina Quick. I was uh, very remiss because I asked for a soprano song and as you can even hear as I speak, I'm certainly not a soprano. So I took a song that I knew really, really well because it was very short notice, the audition, and I could not see myself preparing something soprano so in two, two evenings while I was doing a show.
0: Had you heard about Phantom? Because I imagine there was a lot of uh, news and, and excitement in the press about this new musical coming. Um, did you... Know that you were auditioning for that. I presume you did, and um, did you know much about the role before you arrived at the audition?
1: I didn't know a great deal about the role, but the great sort of synergy was that the song I did take for my audition. And I'm not saying this is good practice for me. It was the right thing to do because I wanted to take something I knew. But really, you should prepare and and take along exactly what you're asked to do. I just stuck my neck out and it paid off because actually the sort of dramatic nature of the song that I took worked for the director and, and what he was seeing in the character, but I'm really not saying that is the best way to prepare.
0: And who was at the audition?
1: Uh, that is a very good question. I'm I'm pretty confident Andrew Lloyd Webber was there. I know he was. Hal Prince, Gillian Lynn, Cameron McIntosh and the musical director but I cannot remember I mean it's a very long time ago certainly those four were there oh and I goodness. do I do remember funnily enough um they were all talking while I was singing and I can be quite uh, fiery I'm a leo and I remember thinking well they're not even listening to me but actually the minute I finished singing How Prince came charging down the auditorium and said that is the exact character that we want the, the drama that we want for this character and I will never forget that because I had made an assumption and uh, perhaps it spurred my performance on who knows but I had made an assumption that was completely wrong and um, it turned out to be good things that people were talking about. So it's something that that's taught me. And I always say to young people when they're auditioning is people will talk while you're doing things. People will point at you and talk behind their hands sometimes, but it's not always bad. We always presume the worst, especially when we're nervous and we're auditioning and I will never, ever forget that.
0: That's really good advice. So whatever happens, keep going
1: whatever happens don't make any presumptions
0: yeah so you walked into the room and there in front of you were the great and the good from the world of musical theater
1: it's a theater it was a theater you couldn't really see everybody to be fair it was in a theater i can't remember which theater but it was in a theater so every that's where i went how I walked down the auditorium then i realized who was there sort of thing if you know what i mean you, you it's that thing of walking out on a stage one after the other and sort of glaring into the light and not necessarily seeing who's there it was that thing of auditioning in a theatre and not in a studio when you audition in the studio you can see everybody playing as day when you audition in a theatre you're standing in the wings just as the person before you usually is finishing and you walk out on stage and you really it's one of those when you put your hand up and try and squint you can't see who's there it's just shadowy figures So that's why when uh, Hal came charging down, that was like, oh, there's the director kind of business. Sometimes it helps not to see everybody and sometimes it's nice to have people in front of you. But something, again, I always say to young people, particularly when they're delivering monologues in auditions, is not to stare the panel in the eye the whole time. It's so off-putting. If someone delivers a whole of their monologue staring at you, the, the first instinct that you have is to look down. And so I always say to young people, please ignore me. Imagine I am not here and that you're playing to an audience on stage so that I can enjoy your performance rather than you looking at mine. Because I think, you do it because you're seeking approval and you want to see the uh, reaction on someone's face, but it's it makes the panel feel very uncomfortable. So that would be something I would suggest for young people to think about. It's songs too, songs too. Let let them be an audience.
0: Sure. And c- can you remember what you sang?
1: Yes, absolutely. I sang nothing from Chorus Line.
0: So you finished the song, uh, Hal came running down, to basically tell you you'd got the job?
1: No, no, absolutely not. Just to tell me that the dramatic quality was what they were looking for in the character. That led to several recalls that I hadn't done my dance call yet.
0: So what happened in the dance call? Because the, the role is really challenging, isn't it? Because there's a, there's a lot of classical ballet in what you have to do and you have to sing and you have to act. And I think if I remember, you actually closed the show, don't you?
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, That actually was one of the biggest challenges was climbing down the uh, portcullis at the end in a safety harness that had been designed originally to go under a, a strapless gypsy dress from a previous scene. And so there was nothing over the shoulders on this harness. It was all sort of around the rib cage and stepped into so it was a really really tricky harness because the only attachment to the portcullis was a sort of strap up the back with a big hook on it i'm sure that got changed over time because the costume was changed very quickly to be dressed as a boy and then have all the the wig the hair underneath the hat to pull off at the end because this big gypsy dress and climbing down the portcullis would didn't really work terribly well but uh, yes it was a it was a sort of multi-role and I think moving forward from when I did it and all these years later, the criteria is very much having been in a ballet company first uh, so that Meg fits in with all the other dancers. Um, So the tricky thing was always finding someone with a classical enough background who could sing and act. Um, So there were several auditions and dance audition. I can't remember going to a big call, but I believe I did. And at one point, I was pitted against my best friend at the time, who oh, was in no. Cats. So it was just her and I at one point. And then I did a long call at the Fortune Theatre with Maria Kesselman, who then became an alternate Christine. And we spent a good hour and a half one day, at least with Jilly Lynn, working on some of the choreography and acting the dialogue that came in the middle of the scenes and those kinds of things. So it was quite a long audition process. Um, and quite, and then I had to meet all the other dancers that had been cast. And at that time, to make sure I was the smallest, that was one of the criteria at the time. I have seen taller megs over the years. There were all sorts of pieces to this jigsaw.
0: What was it like working with Gillian Lynn?
1: Gillian Lynn was really and truly a genius. I think I was a bit of a challenge because I didn't fit into just I don't mean just in any way but I didn't fit just into the dance category of the show so I was getting direction from Hal and getting input as well quite rightly from Jilly and I think until the show settled until recasting took place and things there was always that bit of I wasn't quite sure where I fitted in terms of the character the character was not a difficult thing to create that's not what I mean but I think Julie felt very much that Meg belonged to the dancers quite rightly, and Hal felt that I belonged to the cast of characters quite rightly. And that being my first role as such, not being in the ensemble, I had to pick my way through that. I learned a tremendous amount from both of them. I have such respect. At the time, and it's a really interesting thought for young people now, I couldn't Google Hal Prince. And to find out who he was, I'd have (laughs) had to have gone gone to a library or, you know, there was talk, but I had no idea of the magnitude of someone like Hal. And um, maybe that was a good thing. Julie, I knew because I'd had several auditions for for Cats at the time when I was auditioning for 42nd Street and around that time. Julie, I had sort of come across before. Uh, But, um, yeah, when you look back, it was complete who's who, and such a privilege. And prior to starting rehearsals for the show, we were all, the, the cast, the named characters, I think all of us were invited to perform a pressed version of the show at Sidmonton, under Lloyd Webber's home, where he has a church used for performances. So I got to know the other characters, the other people playing the roles a little bit before rehearsal started, which was great.
0: Sure. So we
1: did a potted version at Sidmonton, which I will never forget. Um, terrifying, but brilliant at the same time. And then we started rehearsals on my 21st birthday, which was a strange thing to do.
0: And can you remember where you were when you found out you got the part?
1: Well, I maybe shouldn't be saying this, but I kind of knew before I knew, um, because my cousin at the time was the editor of Live and Kicking on Saturday mornings TV programme. And Andrew Lloyd Webber and Richard Stilgo, who was the lyricist at the time, were both on the program. So all her colleagues were saying, go and talk to Andrew, go and talk to Andrew. And they had a little chat and may have had a little um, unofficial chat about the fact I'd auditioned. So I had a better idea that I may be in the running by the time my agent called me. But I've had that before anyway, where you think you have a job where it's been verbally offered to you and then people have changed their minds. So I didn't take it for granted. I just took it that they'd had a wee chat and he, of course, knew who I was and that I'd been doing well at the auditions kind of thing. So I don't remember where I was when I heard from my agent. But I do remember my cousin ringing and saying, Well, I've spoken, obviously dying of embarrassment, but thankful secretly inside. Um, but uh, I can't remember where I was when I got the actual call from my agent confirming it. No.
0: What a what a dream job! The f- the very first original production and and just tell me about the moment you walked into the very first rehearsal or you met for the first time Michael Crawford, Sarah. Well, Bightman. I'd already
1: met all of those people at Sidmonton. So, I, I knew everybody, most of the leading roles I had already worked with Steve Barton and Mary, who became my mother in the show, Mary Miller. But I mean, when you first all get together, you read through the show, that's how you break the ice. You sit round and everybody reads the script so everyone understands what's happening in sequence. So, we rehearsed it at what everyone used to call it Awful House, Orford House in uh, South East London. And that's where our home was for six to eight weeks of rehearsals.
0: So you just literally lived there pretty much?
1: Rehearsed all day, every day. Um, Yeah, another piece piece of advice is I missed a rehearsal once because I didn't see it on the call board, something I wasn't expecting to be in. And I missed a rehearsal one evening, which I've never, ever, ever done since, but was quite mortifying because it was for the first manager's office. and it's very complicated, the scene. And I was—I couldn't have been more mortified if I had tried. Um, but uh, so I suppose another lesson there is always read the call board, always. Even if you don't think you're going to be in, double check.
0: Michael Crawford, I mean, he, he was a surprise choice at the last minute in the original production, wasn't he?
1: In some ways, no, in others, because the, re- the way that came about is that Ian Adam was... Michael's singing teacher, and I believe Sarah's at the time. And Andrew heard Michael singing in one of his singing lessons. So he'd already, I mean, he, singing differently to the way he'd been heard to sing before in Barnum and shows like that. So Andrew had had some insight into what he could do with his voice through hearing him through a wall, literally. So um, from Andrew's point of view, I don't think it was an, an uber surprise.
0: So how did the the rehearsals work? Because I think that's really interesting, and I know a lot of people will be interested in this. You went through scene by scene, I imagine, because it's sung through, isn't it?
1: It's sung through. I mean, we did a lot of of, uh, vocal calls because there was so much to learn. You don't rehearse a show in order necessarily, very rarely, because of the logistics so dance calls might be taking place in one room while phantom and christina rehearsing in another and then you come together for scenes that you're all in we'll, we'll have all rehearsed masquerade together but it, and it, when you're doing a big show like that that's going to have a west end run uh, they tend to do some kind of a mock-up of the right the rising of the stage if you like so build a, a rough a rough wooden structure perhaps to represent the staircase or the uh, the graveyard scene so you start to you certainly tape it out on the floor in the main room and if you can and you are lucky enough to work with mock-ups of what the set's going to be like then you start to introduce that over time and then procs might may arrive if they're very very integral procs and then in another room someone might be doing a costume fitting
0: in phantom especially there's a lot of moving parts isn't there i mean the the costumes i think they were designed by the great Maria. Uh,
1: Bjornsson the late great Bjornsson Yes, she was um phenomenally creative um her the embellishments on our costumes certain pieces of material came from all over the world at in its time it was a long time ago remember it was so lavish and so detailed and so gobsmackingly beautiful and she was a genius and I think that the set and costumes were such a large part of the show.
0: Because she obviously had a vision, as did Andrew and the rest of the creative team around how Phantom was gonna look. And it was very, and it's still, isn't it, very much a lavish opera look and everything around it. Um, Did you have any nasty costume quick changes
1: or? I had the quickest changes in the show, actually. It was, yes, particularly in the first act. I think the quickest was from Il Muto into the ballet, into Sylvan Glade. That was really, really quick. So we'd just done Il Muto on stage in a mob cap and dress and a trinket box and normal slip-on satin, heeled shoes into the ballet. So that was super, super quick. I had to devise a sort of special elastic thing to go on point shoes because there wasn't time to tie up ribbons. It was a massive change. I used to have stage management, probably two people from wigs and three dresses in the wings, about 30 seconds.
0: I like that idea of using the elastic.
1: Yes, it was sort of a double thick elastic twisted so it could just go over my ankle and look like ribbons, but it wasn't ribbons. It was either that or Meg couldn't be in in that ballet, which wouldn't have made sense because then it wouldn't have made sense with the following on sequence that happened so we had to work something out and I mean wardrobe and wigs in that show were phenomenal.
0: The opening night you, you've gone through all the rehearsals the excitement's building or the press the press night perhaps that's that's the I guess the first big test isn't it and reveal of the show to the world.
1: It is but I mean you, you've done the show by then um, plenty of times in previews which is reassuring gives you that run in and tweaks things technically the chandelier used to go too fast for example which might not sound uh, a big thing but the speed it was coming down the stage it was initially quite dangerous because it was had to be caught in by characters in the show as it were and that had to be addressed during the technical rehearsals and it is quite a technical show so to have those uh, previews that's why they're cheaper because things can go wrong but it's also uh, very good for the cast to start the bed, to bed the show in before the opening night. Yeah. So, so yes, opening night holds a particular different tension, but actually getting through the first preview is something in itself. It's the first time you do it with an audience. That, that that's really tells you if there's going to be a laugh or there's a, how sort of to gauge applause. Um, And you start to get your measure of your show. And that includes backstage, because when it runs like that, you have to be thinking about your, literally, choreography backstage. I mean, there's no better example, actually, than the show before I did, which was 42nd Street, where we all had a number and a place in the wings where we ran to for quick changes, because it was quite a lot of them. So you start to learn your journey backstage, your pausing points, where you might be, when you're going to have water, whatever. And then by the time you get to opening night, it's a different kind of tension, I suppose.
0: You did two years in this show. I think that's right, isn't it?
1: Yes, yes.
0: Um, is, is that the length of a normal contract in the West End? No, or?
1: no, it can vary. I mean, I was on 2 one year contracts at the time. It really depends. Um, I've known people stay in shows for the life of the show. Uh, early on in Novita back then, there were people that the uh, tango dancers stayed in the show for the whole run. There were people that stayed in Cats for the whole run, but perhaps took on different roles. And in fact, I have a dear friend who was one of the dancers in, in Phantom who's now the resident director there and has never left, but gone into different situations within the show. Depend, very much depends on your personal career path and what the world has in store for you, I think.
0: In those two years, what were your favourite moments
1: I think one of the most memorable things, sounds a little cliched, I'm sure, but was meeting Princess Diana. She came to see the show and uh, what was rather lovely was that she had an association with London City Ballet at the time. And one of the cast members, in fact, two of the cast members um, were from London City Ballet and had got married. And when they were in the company, she had attended their wedding. And I just thought that was a rather lovely thing. It was a huge privilege to meet her. But it was such a great show to take part in. I I cherish my memories of spending time between shows with Mary Miller. She was a complete and utter mentor, guide, and protector to me. She was the most incredible woman and having much, much fun with the lovely Claire Moore, who I am happy to say I occasionally do still see. So there's there's many, many fond memories. Being on stage, you can't beat it night after night after night, but you tend to remember the community, the, the things that happen outside of the show or during the show, but not on stage, just as much as being on stage, I think.
0: Is there any advice you'd give around uh, staying power? I guess that's the best way to describe it. I mean, it's a big thing, isn't it? It's a, it's a lot of things going on for you and all the characters. How do you maintain that through all the runs
1: well for for my for the the opera singers it's it was a lot uh, i guess i suppose they kept vocally very healthy you warm up, you go to class you train i i think it's uh naive to think that you can sustain eight shows a week without any kind of regime we all had a we all used to do ballet bar in the flat upstairs at her majesty's um we used to do a bar before every single show i used to teach um in the day quite a lot i used to go to classes at pineapple quite a lot singing lessons i joined the Actors center i think you have to keep working on your craft and and never more so we weren't in that situation at her majesty's but there's so many theaters that have a raked stage so you're never standing flat that you need to have a training regime and there's so much more access to that kind of thing it doesn't have to be dance necessarily but fitness keep fit and actually keep challenging yourself and learning new things and different things keep your acting chops you know sharp and all of those things you don't know what your next role is going to be and what you're going to be asked to do at your next audition so if you it, if you think about just my particular story, which is not peculiar, uh, to go from a show that's tap to a show that's ballet, you have to have kept up your ballet training during the time you're tapping every day. And, and even just to protect your ankles in some ways, you know, because the movement is so different. But it, it's quite a, you know, you have to have a committed schedule outside of the show.
0: And just before we leave, Phantom, um, any really funny moments or things that went a bit wrong things that went a bit
1: wrong yeah things (laughs) that went a bit wrong um my harness fouled a couple of times which meant that I had to step back up unhook myself and climb down which was a completely different feeling apparently uninsured I found out afterwards but I just felt if I didn't come down the portcullis then the show wouldn't end and and uh, we couldn't do the trick at the end and all of those things which I'm not going to reveal but um that was, a couple, that was a challenge because the step down between each step of the portcullis was my complete reach from fingertip to toe. But it was different when I had the harness on, so that was a, a little bit of a risk, I suppose. Um, this wouldn't happen now, but we actually had a fire at the theatre one day because Rikey. one of the stagehands had not put out a cigarette. And um, we all had to evacuate, it was in the interval. So I was up three floors up in my dressing room at the time, getting ready for masquerade with half a costume on, and the fire bell rang, and we all had to evacuate and stand on the street, and uh, stop the show. We didn't we didn't complete the show that day, so um, that was unusual. But we had no we had many many fun times. Um, the boat used to be a little bit temperamental, but. Uh, that's you know it was radio controlled so those things could be tricky but it was a very very complex show one once or twice we had to stop the show once when the masquerade uh staircase would not go back up the back wall because it was very tight it was on a winch and it used to go upwards on the back wall at her majesty's there and it it, it just got to the point where we couldn't continue the show any further so we had to stop for a little while so just you know over a long run like that there are bound to be things that happen i think
0: Let's talk about life after Phantom. What was your sort of career path after you left the show?
1: Well, when I left Phantom, I thought I was going to do Carousel, but the whole tour was cancelled and I had already obviously uh, moved on from Phantom by then. So that was an enormous shock. I, I think amongst the many beautiful positives about this business, I think that it's very important to be aware that things can change at the drop of a hat. You know, I did the lovely Baker's Wife, which was directed by Trevor Nunn and choreographed by David Deguri, who I assisted a tremendous amount. And we got noticed for that show on Christmas Eve, two weeks notice. But I loved every moment of it, worked with the great Alan Armstrong and lots of people I'm still friends with now. We had a wonderful time doing that show, but it just didn't fly, actually. I remember flying out to Frankfurt, having assisted on a production of Chicago. I remember flying out on three hours notice to go and cover two people in the show the next day. Um, so I had all sorts of adventures. Um, I know I probably at five foot two don't seem like the typical Chicago type, but this wasn't the production that we all grew <laughs> to know of very tall leggy ladies in black. This was a uh, more of the original production that had come over into to London way back. Generally after I did Phantom, I was either assistant choreographer or associate choreographer mostly guarantee I would be dance captain. That's just sort of a path I took on. So I did quite a lot of choreography and I worked with a choreographer called Ken Oldfield quite a lot in canto. Uh, wow. The, great, the uh,
0: great Ken Oldfield.
1: The lovely, the lovely Ken Oldfield. And he and I were a good team because he knew exactly what he wanted, but tap wasn't necessarily his first genre, but I could translate that for him. I'm now heading up the associate and holiday course program at Trin Park. And the lovely thing about that is that was my second choice of school when I was age 10. Ah. I got a a place at Tring and I got a place at Bush Davis. And there was a very famously notorious headmistress at Tring back then. And that was the reason I didn't choose to go there. But I'm very happy to be back there now. It's almost full circle. It's um, a lovely story, I think.
0: Yeah, that is a lovely story. And, you know, honestly, I could talk to you for hours about your incredible career and all the wonderful things you've done and people you've worked with, and perhaps we'll we'll get you back on the, on the show another time. But just before we move into a few questions that's, that people have asked, with all your experience and, and, and thing, things that you've done in terms of performed, danced, choreographed, dance captain, um, what would be your sort of top tips to young performers, uh, especially around auditions and preparation? and sort of managing your time to get work?
1: Good question. Uh, I think I will probably revisit what I said about even when you're not in a show, you need to live your life as much as you can as if you are. That means keeping yourself dance fit, keeping yourself acting fit, keeping yourself singing fit. Now there's all sorts of ways you can do that for not so much cost because there's so much access to things online, but you need to set a routine. Whenever I speak to young people who are about to graduate, I say the next eight eight weeks are not your summer holiday. (laughs) Ostensibly, you know, unless you have a job to go to, you're now entering unemployment, not I'll get going in eight weeks when term starts. And that's a massive adjustment for young people to make. I remember it well. I was seven years at Bush Davis and then, oh, I don't have a bell to rise me in the morning and so forth. You know, you have to make a a schedule and you have to be focused and disciplined. You have to find a way to put food on the table, obviously, uh, as sort of internet businesses and, and so forth have really come forth. I I often say to young people who are graduating, if you're good at something and can make an online business out of it, do it. And I've had people who've gone into making t-shirts as a sideline, jewelry. Um, teaching was always my option, but I didn't have the online things that are around now. But teaching is always going to be my option, I I I think quite firmly. Yeah. But be be um Organized, and if you have to take a job, make sure that the shifts work around you being able to go to auditions, uh, learn new things, study. I mean, I haven't had to study in the same way as a teacher, but I have studied, and while I've been working, I've also done a master's. You have to continue professional development, you have to keep learning because nobody knows everything. So, that's relevant in whatever you're doing, I think. And make sure you know who people are. There's no excuse these days because you can find out about people. You have to be able to work out what's true and what's fake news, obviously. But the ability to research a role before an audition now has never been easier. I'm old-fashioned, and I always say if you go to an audition, please look as if you have made an effort to attend that audition. And don't just roll out of bed and throw on the first thing that you see and I know people know that, but I've seen people who haven't done that. And it shows disrespect to our profession. And And I think you turn up, you turn up early to make sure that you're not going to be rushing through the door for yourself and for your prospective employers. You are prepared. I mean, my little story about singing the wrong song for Phantom doesn't work for everybody, believe me. Um, you're prepared, you're polite. You never know who you're speaking to because the person that signs you in is very possibly the company manager or the stage manager or already employed to work for that company. And please and thank you are very, very useful. And I know I sound like an old Nana, but it gets you a long way and just make sure you know who you're going to be in front of. If you're given names as such and such is going to see you or even the name of a production company, then find out about them so that you walk in informed. and, and, And I think that knowledge gives you confidence in many ways.
0: So I've got a couple of questions here from listeners. Uh, This is from Sal in Sheffield. Who was your inspiration when growing up? And now as a performer, who do you admire the most?
1: Whoa, that's a great question. Who was my inspiration growing up? I suppose uh, this uh, game sounds quite cliched, but my uh, dear departed great aunt was very much my secondary mother I suppose and she took me to see Margot Fontaine and Rudolf Nureyev at the Royal Opera House and I think I'd be hard-pressed to say that that didn't leave a massive impact on me but the other thing that really really drove me age 13 was going to see a chorus line at Drury Lane that blew me away and impassioned me even further to do well and now I am a great fan of Imelda Staunton's, I have to say. I think she's a consummate artist, professional, creative. She's a chameleon, and I love watching her. Um, I'm very moved and proud to watch Laura Pitt Palford. I had very little to do with her career but she did play Nancy in our youth project uh, version of Oliver in rugby many moons ago. I don't take any credit for her further training or her uh, brilliant talent but it's a lovely thing to be able to go and see someone that you worked with as a young person before they'd gone into training doing the kind of work that she's doing but most importantly she is the most incredibly nice young woman
0: so we're going to finish with your challenge what we are i'm hoping to do at the end of each episode of our podcast series is have our special guests give all of you out there a little challenge to do especially in this time of lockdown so i'm going to let janet explain what her challenge is which is very relevant to phantom
1: Okay, so uh, I have sent Simon a link to a very short snippet on YouTube of the 25th anniversary production of Phantom, Masquerade. So the challenge is to try and learn that bit of choreography and perform it on your stairs if you wish, if you have them uh, inside or outside. But before you perform it and film it and send it to Simon, you need to design yourself a Masquerade costume. Now, you can either base it on some of the costumes that you see in the piece. We go from monkeys to soldiers to butterflies to strawberries, or create something that you feel is fitting, bearing in mind the bright colours and the characters that were included in Masquerade so that you perform your piece in costume. So I have spoken to my work, and for the best costume and rendition of this short snippet of Masquerade, I'm able to offer the lucky winner a day on one of my courses at Trim Park School for the Performing Arts on one of our musical theatre days, where you'll learn singing, dancing and acting from some great teachers and come and spend a day at our beautiful school.
0: Thank you, Janet, ever so much for joining us on today's podcast.
1: You're more than welcome. May I just make one more wee suggestion for everyone who's listening that's stuck inside at the moment. Um, And I refer this to another very, very dear friend of mine, Mr. Stephen Mears, CBE, which is the most fantastic news ever. He did a wonderful uh, post on Facebook, which I don't know if you have seen. This is a tough time, but there's never been a better time to learn. And his wonderful message to everybody is just dig deep watch everything learn from people research watch clips read things uh, there's perusal scripts being offered free online to read at the moment there's some of the best performances being streamed so this time is not lost you rest your body and mind and soul and steep yourself in your craft and you will come out with more knowledge than you ever knew possible
0: thank you janet